Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Hello and welcome to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. My name is Mark Hamilton and joining me as always, my friend, my colleague, my neighbor, my peer, my frenemy, Mr. Mark Daly. Now, my friend, you've had a rougher week than I have, and I thought I had a pretty <laughs> rough week, which I'll explain in a moment, but you've had a rough couple of days. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing okay. I've been uh, feeling a little bit under the weather the last couple of days, but fortunately, on the well on the road to recovery and, uh, you know, unfortunately having to isolate for uh, for a couple of days here, which is, is fine during the week because I haven't missed out on doing any work, but... You know, if I kind of follow all the COVID protocols, I guess I got to stay in place until Sunday, which will kind of be at the, you know, the five day limit or whatever. So I guess, you know, I'm just going to have to find ways to amuse myself on a non work day without actually doing work on a weekend. But other than that, you know, I, I feel pretty good. And I think that's the the, the main thing. But um, yeah, you know, I ran it for two and I was just going to say, I outran COVID for two and a half years, and it finally caught up to me, but um, shouldn't complain. Feeling pretty good, and, and there's obviously some people have had a lot, lot worse than I have, so, you know. We are probably that, the last part of North America to get summer. It's been about 100, 105 degrees here, 35, yep. 36, 38 degrees Celsius the last couple of days, so it's not the worst time for you to have to isolate in your cool lavishly furnished basement and my friend it's not even this is the true. first this is not this isn't even the first podcast that you've actually recorded today and we'll get to the reason why in a couple of minutes but before yes. we do my friend i kind of want to share a little bit of my personal drama this week so you you've had covid uh first time sounds like you're getting better which is fantastic thank goodness for modern yes, medicine I had a fantastic opportunity earlier this week to interview somebody called Trey Kirby. Trey Kirby, of course, from The Athletic, the No Dunks podcast, the No Breaks podcast. I am a huge fan. As you will learn when you listen to that podcast, I have been listening to his show for probably 15 years now. So it was really a thrill to get to speak to him. But when you and I were recording last Thursday, for anyone that's listened Mm -hmm. to that podcast, you had to do some surgery on that podcast (laughs) because my mic failed twice which disrupted the recording. So you had to go back and stitch it all back together. And then we had some issues on Sunday. And then right before I was about to record that podcast, my mic died. My USB microphone completely died. So I had to dig out my old analog XLR mic, um, which I'm still using now. But as it turns out, the quality is pretty good anyway. So if everyone at home is cool with this, I might just keep using this mic rather than replacing the old USB mic. 
You know, it's funny, right? The way that sometimes that these uh, things work out. But, you know, I I have to admit, I'm quite, you know, happy with the virtual studio setup that we have because the way that it kind of works is that it records a separate track and it kind of like syncs it all together. So I just kind of had a mental note of where some of those gaps were. And it was a bit of work, but it, it wasn't as bad as I was expecting it because every time you dropped out, it would just start a new session and kind of keep ticking along from there. So it was it, it wasn't as bad as it could have been it wasn't easy but uh, it, it wasn't like i was up to like four in the morning or something like that it, it maybe added an extra 30 minutes on to the to the processing time which you know was uh, wasn't too bad but yeah dude that was just uh, when i saw your message the other night i'm like why would this have to happen like literally <laughs> exactly. the night before this big exactly. interview that you had all set up but you know fortunately you go back to the tried and tested old technology and it worked out for the good. So, so before but, I kick oh, it over to you for the championship yep. update, do you mind if I run through yes, two sir. quick laundry keeping items? Go ahead. Fantastic. Air your dirty laundry, or is it clean What's, laundry? It's. I promise you it's clean laundry. I think the first one <laughs> is I want to give everyone a little bit of an update on what the podcast is going to look like over the next five or six weeks. So the good news, yep. the good news, of course, is that summer break's coming. It means we get four weeks off. Uh, the bad news is there might not be as much Formula One news as you would normally expect. But that said, we're not taking a break. We will not be resting. We have a ton of content coming up for you. So we have that Trey Kirby podcast that we recorded a couple of days ago. That is going to drop next week. We have an interview with Kevin Clark. Again, Kevin Clark from The Ringer. That is set up for the last week of August. Fingers crossed. That should be great. Um, We also have Steph Wentworth. Of course, she does a lot of the TV broadcast uh, announcing and production work for the Formula One esports competition. Uh, We also, of course, have some work with Tim coming up. We've locked in an interview with Ed Spencer. My good friend Sharbel, known on social media as F1 Techie, is going to join us. We're going to do a very special technical show with him. As I announced a couple of days ago, we've locked down an interview with somebody I've wanted to speak to for a very long time, uh, Hamda Um, Mm Al-Kabisi. She's going to be joining us probably next week. We'll drop it the week after. Um, So super, super, super excited to have Hamza on the show. Um, And on top of that, I think we've got a couple of other great things set up. Oh, we've got F1 Book Club with Bert Pinkerton, which you and I are both super excited about. That's a new concept. This is going to be cool. This is going to be fun. Yep. We're, we're going to do a podcast book club. So, you know what? Every month, every couple of months, we're going to get together, the three of us, and we're going to review a really great Formula One book, talk about some of the juicy excerpts, some of the revelations yep. within it. So that's super cool. So yeah, we've got a lot going on this summer. Yeah. And we're also trying to set up a mega interview, which who knows if it'll come off, but you know, that old saying, you know, swing for the fence. So we, we've swung for the fence on this one. And uh, hopefully we'll have a, an announcement uh, one of these days that uh, we'll we'll be able to, to share with you because if it, if we could pull it off, it's going to be really really cool. So what else do we have on the laundry list, or was that the list? Well, I'm going to pull up the fantasy. I'll, I'm going to pull up that quick uh, F1 fantasy update. But did you want to take the last time the you tried to do it? Sure, I'll do that because I was going to say the last time you just tried to pull up the fantasy like standings, like out like pulling a rabbit out of the hat, like the site lets you down, which. There's issues there. Anyways, while you're doing that, I will do the uh, championship update. Appreciate that. Uh, the Appreciate 2022 that. Formula One World Drivers Championship. Max Verstappen from Red Bull Racing leads the way with 233 points. Ahead of the unfortunate Charles Leclerc from Ferrari with 170 points. Sergio Perez in the second Red Bull with 163 points. Carlos Sainz from Ferrari fourth with 144 points. Just one point ahead of George Russell from Mercedes. 
and Lewis Hamilton, the second Mercedes driver, rounding out the top six. There's usually no such thing as a top six, but when you have one of the greatest drivers of all time, currently in six, you know, we kind of like make exceptions to the rules. Uh, Over on the constructor side, it is Red Bull leading the way with 396 points. Ferrari is second with 314 points. Expect it to flip around very, very soon because according to Ferrari team principal Mattia Bonotto, he thinks it's entirely feasible they can win the remaining 10 races of the 2022 Formula One World Championship. So I'll, I'll just leave that right there for all of you to ponder and digest. And I'll go on to let you all know that Mercedes is still third in the championship with 270 points. Alpine is fourth with 93. McLaren is fifth with 89. And then they're followed by Alfa Romeo, Haas, Alfa Tauri, Aston Martin, and Williams. Now, on your old, trusty old 386, uh, have you pulled up your... <laughs> <laughs> your Dude, I had... I, I... Back in the day, I had a 386 DX40 with 8 megs of RAM and a 1 meg ISA graphics card. I'm not going to go super nerdy. This isn't Linus Tech Tips. But I do. I have the fantasy (laughs) update right in front of me. Number one, still Andrew T, 2,533 points. I guess you can't say it that way. Number two, Canadian Adam J, 2,458 points. Number three, Thaddeus F, 2,436 points. Number four, Ludwig Y, 2,412 points. Number five, Whitman R, 2,400 points even. Number six, Marshall W, 2,391 points. Number seven, Noah F, 2,387 points. Number eight, Delbert D, 2,377 points. Number nine, Daffy A, 2,371 points. And then finally, 10, Roman M, 2,363 points. The only non-Brit, non-Canadian that has cracked the top 10 yet. That's impressive. You know, I'm still blown away by those uh, fantasy stats and where the leaders are are coming from. There's something in the water of the UK, apparently, that just really develops outstanding fantasy players. So well done to to all of you that uh, made it very interesting and fun to to follow along what's going on in the fantasy league this year. Wow. So, you know, we've had some drama personally this week. Formula One's had some drama this week. And the biggest one is obviously the the announcement earlier today that four-time world champion and current Aston Martin driver Sebastian Vettel is going to retire from Formula One at the end of the season. Now, I guess maybe this isn't, I mean, I guess it's a bit of a surprise because I guess when you get used to somebody being in the sport, as long as uh, somebody like Sebastian has, they just become a fixture. You just expect they're going to be there for for a long, long time. And I guess the writing's been on the wall, but apparently this is something he's been tossing around ever since the end of uh, 2018, which, you know, I guess if you kind of look where his career's gone since 2018, kind of makes a, a, a little bit of sense. But I just wanted to get your reaction, first of all, to the, the video that he posted and then, you know, the, also the, the statement, the, uh, the text version of that announcement. I, I really found it quite moving. You know, uh, I, I, I really felt I, I wasn't super emotional, but I, I really felt it uh, when, when I watched it because I felt it was a very, I, I thought it was a very down to what do you want to call it down to earth i thought he he looked very vulnerable he really opened himself up and just like everything that he said in that statement i think every one of us identified at least with one or two things that sebastian vettel said in that statement about you know 
what he you know what he had done in Formula One, his reasons for retiring, and what he's looking forward to doing in the future, and everything that went in there. I, I'm sure we all something in that statement struck a chord with all of us. I know it did with me personally. Hundred percent, hundred percent. And as I was listening to it, I was actually driving and listening to it this afternoon. But the thing that struck me, well, there's a couple of things. One was the fact that this is his second language. German is his first language, and he's more beautifully eloquent and articulate in English, which is my first language, than I could ever dream of being. And, <laughs> right. and that said, I think one of the things that really struck me was his desire not to be identified purely as an F1 driver, that he wants he wants the memory of Sebastian Vettel to be bigger than that. He doesn't want to be defined. Forget the the world champion piece, just he doesn't want to be defined as a human being purely as a Formula One driver. He wants he wants more in life and he wants to to clearly, I don't know, contribute more to society than simply having been a Formula One driver. I, I think the other thing that really struck me about that speech was the fact that he was able to interweave some of the things that he's become really, and he may have been passionate about these for a while, but he was really able to weave in some of the topics that are obviously going to dominate his post Formula One life. And we talk about the climate. Climate was a big part of it, and the fact that it's going to pose a big challenge. But all of that said, I think it was, I think it was beautifully articulate. And just in, and I, I don't know about your experience, but I was probably one of the last people today to to hear he had retired. And obviously, I, I saw yesterday that he'd activated a social media account on Instagram and everyone's like, well, this mm-hmm. can only mean one thing. He's retiring and we all got a good laugh out of that. But this morning I get up and I'm a little blurry eyed. I see there's a message from a friend of the show saying, hey, do you guys want to link up and do a reaction show? And I'm just like, I'm super groggy. I'm like, no. And then my my WhatsApp was blowing up and it wasn't until a couple <laughs> hours later that I even realized what was, what was happening. And it wasn't until a few hours later that I really started reflecting back on, on his career. And I think if there's one thing that I kind of want to stress, and I'd love to kind of walk through his career a little bit, because I think it might be helpful for people that are newer to F1, but Mm -hmm. to take everyone back to 2012, late 2012, early 2013, uh, I was starting to date my wife. And the first couple of times we went on dates together, we didn't really know a lot about each other. And I recall this, I recall this one night that we're in my car and we're driving up the Sea to Sky Highway to Whistler, uh, which is of course a big ski resort north (laughs) of Vancouver. And the conversation was kind of awkward because we didn't really know what to talk about. And somehow the concept or the idea of Formula One came up. And not only was she a Formula One fan, which struck me as amazing, but she saw Sebastian Vettel as as the villain mm-hmm. of the sport. And I did as well. And and it made me recall the fact that during his run of domination, uh, culminating not just with four straight titles, but with the multi-21 episode with Mark Webber, he was seen as the villain of Formula One. And in a way, when he went to Ferrari, that status was almost elevated in a way. And of course, it's really only been in the last couple of years, ever since she left Ferrari and the pressure of the Tifosi and the Italian sports community kind of evaporated, has he kind of come out of his shell and demonstrated a personality and and a sense of cause for social justice issues that I don't think any of us knew was there. And I've often thought that, look, you know what, 
in Red Bull, he was in a winning car and he was laser focused on being a world championship at almost any cost. When he goes to Ferrari, he's in a strictly run machine of an organization and there's immense pressure there to be a champion and bring a championship back to the team where, of course, his his idol and family friend, uh, Michael Schumacher, had won so many championships, five championships. So I, I think when he got to Aston Martin, a lot of that pressure was gone. And I think if we want to credit um, mm-hmm. Otmar Snafnauer and Crack and I'm not going to say Whitmarsh, but the Aston Martin organization with anything is the fact that maybe they've allowed him to share his personality with the world in a way that may not have been acceptable when he was with Red Bull and Ferrari. And I, I, I'm going to pass it back to you, but I have a couple of notes here that I thought was really interesting. I was listening to the Checkered Flag podcast earlier today, and they interviewed Michael Schmidt. And Michael Schmidt is a long, long, long-term Formula One journalist from, from Germany, and he knows the Schumacher family really well, and he knows Sebastian Vettel and his family really well. And he made a couple of points that I thought were really interesting. Hmm. The first was he believes that if Formula One was currently all in on synthetic fuels, e-fuels now, that it may have extended Sebastian Vettel's career by one or two years. That if they were all in on e-fuels, his career may have run a little bit longer. And I think as you and I have discussed recently, I think it's getting harder and harder for Sebastian Vettel to campaign on the cause of climate when he's in a Formula One car being powered almost entirely by oil extract. So I think that was getting challenging for him. The two other messages that I thought were really interesting was one, Vettel's always had this position that the message the message, the social cause message, the climate change message itself is more important than the stage, the platform, meaning that he didn't feel he needed to use social media. If he's going to exit the sport, he loses this massive global platform and social media is going to have to be a big part of it. And then the last one, and this one really struck me, is that he indicated that in many ways, the end of his career really happened with Ferrari that he went to Ferrari to win a championship like Michael Schumacher and bring glory back to that organization, and he wasn't able to do it. And he believes, and this this I thought was amazing, he believes that Mike, or he believes that Sebastian Vettel mm-hmm. winning a single title with Ferrari would have meant more to him than the four he won with Red Bull. And of course, he wasn't able to deliver that title. He came close in 2017 before having that rough conclusion, came close in 2018, but not close enough, but he didn't manage to do it. So I just thought those were some interesting points that I I wanted to share. My friend, where were you and how did you hear the news of the retirement today? (laughs) Well, I've been where I've been for the past couple of days in my lavishly appointed (laughs) basement. You know, with ample time to doom scroll through my timeline on Twitter and Instagram, but you know, actually, it's not that groomy once you learn how to filter out, you know, what are good follows and ones that aren't so such good ones. But yeah, I mean, it, it came as a bit of a surprise. But you know, when you kind of go and you know, kind of digest and, and analyze his statement a little bit further, I mean, there's there's a lot of reasons that he puts into why he he decided now was the time to 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 call it a day. And we've all been there in our lives, regardless what aspect or whatever our lives it, it, it might be. When you're ready to move on, you're just ready to move on. And he just kind of had that look in his eyes. It's just like, 
I've seen that before, you know, like I, I've seen it in other uh, elite level athletes that I've had the opportunity to to interview and be around. And then just even as something as normal and mundane as, you know, somebody like either yourself or somebody that you work with, you just decide, you know what? It's time to be for me to move on to a different company. I mean, this is obviously on a much uh, bigger level. I mean, one of the things that uh, that that he said that really struck home is that you know he's the father of three children, you know, and an amazing woman who has is his wife, which is about the only thing I share in common with <laughs> with Sebastian Vettel because I'm also the father of three uh, children and I have an amazing wife as well. But he made you know, and I just kind of thought you know those years that you have when your kids especially when they're young they go by so fast and you can't stop it you can't rewind it and those opportunities to spend time with them you you don't get that opportunity to do it again especially when it comes to a job like that that, that he has and of course formula one's a privilege to to be involved in but the amount of time and the amount of focus and commitment that you have to put in, especially with a top team like Red Bull and especially with a team like Ferrari, which is the biggest racing team on the face of the planet, is is more than I think that any of us can understand. I mean, of course, there are many, many people that that travel a lot for work. Some people travel a lot for business, of course, military people go on deployments all the time. And, you know, I, I mean, it's it's not unusual so, I mean, lots of people do it, but you can understand that. But I mean, earlier in my career, I had to travel away for, for work as well. And, you know, I'd be gone for several weeks or a month or two at a time. And and it's difficult. So I completely understand that. But I think that's why there, there were so many things in his statement that really resonated with me. But I think that what you know, as particularly touching as I found his announcement, I also found it really is equally moving and touching a lot of like the tributes and I, i've got here i'm just looking at my phone and uh, lewis hamilton earlier today he uh, tweeted and he said quote seb it's an honor it's been an honor to call you a competitor and an even greater honor to call you my friend leaving the sport better than you found it is always the goal i have no doubt that whatever comes next for you will be exciting meaningful and rewarding love you man now that that is that's a huge huge compliment from another guy that uh, you know I have uh, you know a huge amount of uh, respect for and that's uh, Lewis Hamilton and the tributes have just been coming in all day long from 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 all all four corners of the globe and it's uh, it, it's wonderful to see but it's interesting right I mean uh, I was on the TSN Racing Pod with uh, with with Tim Haraney our good friend earlier today and we were talking about it and you know you raise a good point and you say that. Uh, Seb said that he basically felt like his career, I don't know, maybe from a competitive point of view, ended at, uh, you know, after 2018. Obviously, Charles comes in 2019. And then, you know, Seb goes on to Aston Martin and everything like that. So it's it's a question of Sebastian's legacy. I mean, he's a four-time world champion. And I mean, you look at the the list, I've got some of the stats here. Some of his, uh, where did it go now? His, uh, here we go, Formula One records. Here we go. Most wins in a season, 13. Most pole positions in a season, 15. Most lap led in a season, 739. Most consecutive wins, 9. Most consecutive grand slams. Oh, that's not Formula One. Okay, most wins from pole position in a season is 9. Youngest Grand Prix pole position winner at 21 years, 72 days. Youngest driver to score a double, so that's pole position and race win. Youngest driver to score a hat trick, so pole, race win, and fastest lap. 
youngest Formula One World uh, Drivers Champion, youngest uh, Formula One Drivers uh, champ- or Championship runner-up, and the shortest time elapsed before gaining a penalty in a Formula One Grand Prix, which was six seconds, which he uh, earned at the 2006 uh, Turkish Grand Prix. I mean, he's got more than 50 race wins, more than 50 poles. I mean, like I say, four world titles. I mean, he's had an impressive, impressive career. But, you know, for, for me, everything kind of like turned sort of like halfway through that. I guess it would have been 2018, right? They kind of go into the summer break at this this time four years ago. He and Lewis are pretty close in the championship. They come back and then you you go, you go to Spa, you go to Monza. He has that opening lap um, coming together with Lewis Hamilton. And then that sort of becomes the newer version that we see of Sebastian Vettel, where he seems to come out, get, get entangled with other drivers in situations that you wouldn't really expect the driver of a caliber of Sebastian Vettel to get involved with. I mean, he had, he got entangled up with Lewis and with Max and, you know, there, there's numerous examples to, you know, to, to, to pull from, but I think it kind of makes his, um, his legacy a bit of a, a cloudy one. You know, I mean, he's definitely one of the best, obviously. I mean, when you look at all those records, but I mean, the way that, his his career over the last four years or so has kind of lost a little bit of the shine, kind of takes him out of the greats category into one of the best, you know? You kind of have like that that upper tier pantheon with like your Senna's and your Fangio's and your Schumacher's. And, you know, I mean, I, I guess you can throw Lewis in there with an asterisk because, you know, his career isn't over yet. And I would place Sebastian in that second tier of drivers because... Yeah, for me, that's the, the sheen's gone from his career a bit. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Yeah, it's an interesting concept of, of legacy. And I'm so glad we're talking about this because 
If you talk about the the Mount Rushmore uh, of Formula One drivers, you could debate whether he should there be there, whether it's a lock. If you steal, if you cop a term from Bill Simmons and you were to construct a Formula One driver pyramid, what tier would he fall under? And and I wonder sometimes too whether his his legacy might be different if he opted to retire after 2013. So for those that maybe aren't super familiar with his career, he he had his big break. Uh, he was a member of the Red Bull driver. Academy. He's really the first driver to break through and, and come out of that very successfully. Of course, back in 2006, 2007, Red Bull was a brand new team. Uh, he was a test driver with BMW Sauber. He got his first race uh, race opportunity with BMW Sauber in 2007. Actually finished in the points. He finished eighth in his first race, which was a terrific start. He raced seven more races that season with Toro Rosso. He raced all of 2008 with Toro Rosso. In fact, he had a race win that year, a thrilling race win at Monza and a Tararasso, which is absolutely fantastic. I think people often forget as well that in 2009, his first year with Red Bull, with the big team, he finished second in the championship. And oftentimes, I think Braun and, and Jensen Button overshadow the, the competition because that was such a Cinderella story. But he finished a close, I think he was four points behind. And of course, the way that points were awarded was quite different. They're far more conservative, but he finished very, very close to, to Jensen Button in the championship in 2010. He finished just four points uh, ahead of Fernando Alonso, clinching his first title. And then 2011 was absolute a rampage. He finished first or second in every race except for one race where he finished fourth and in I believe Abu Dhabi when he had a DNF before I think winning again in Brazil to close the season. And of course he wins again in 2011. He wins again in 2012. 2013 uh you know, he went, of course, in 2013. 2014 was the year we make the shift to the turbo hybrid era. Uh, Renault, of course, at that point is having some significant challenges putting together a competitive package. And just like that, he's gone and he's with Scuderia Ferrari. Um, in his first year with Scuderia Ferrari, he finishes third before a fourth in 2016. And then he finishes second in both 2017 and 2018. And I think to kind of go back to your point, which is, hey, his legacy got a little bit clouded. That's probably where that happened, right? Which is, 2017, there was an opportunity to win a title and he really fell apart in the last four or five races. And likewise, in 2018, again, another opportunity to win a championship. And like you said, going into the summer break, he was in a great position. In fact, that year at Silverstone, I was there. I saw him win. I saw him physically with my own eyes on the podium. And I remember walking out of of that circuit thinking he's going to win the championship this year. And at that point, the comp, the, the conversation wasn't so much about Lewis catching, catching Michael Schumacher. It was who's going to catch Michael Schumacher. Is it going to be Sebastian Vettel or is it going to be Lewis Hamilton? And of course, Lewis Hamilton ultimately does it. Seb never adds to his championship tally. But of course, that legacy with Ferrari is always going to be a little bit messy. And then what happened mm -hmm. after that in Aston Martin? And I, I think he signed up for Aston Martin. And I think, I think Lawrence Stroll put on a really hard sales pitch. And I think there was promises that that car and that team was going to be something fundamentally different. And I think he has to be incredibly disappointed with what they what they offered him in the in the sense of 
providing a, a competitive race car. And I know, I know Lawrence Stroll came out and said, Hey, you know, we tried to keep him. We tried to convince him to stay, but if I'm already on the fence and you can't promise me a better car for 2023, why am I going to come back? You know, why am I going to come back to this again? So, so I agree that he seems, there seems to be two parts, maybe three parts of his career. There's that period of domination right up until the end of 2013, there is that period with Ferrari, which is the lost opportunity. And then there's the Aston Martin years, which are his Washington wizard years in a lot of ways. Yeah. You know, it's interesting too, because like I was saying, you know, you have your sort of your upper tier, your pantheon of like your Formula One goats, right? Your Fangios, your Schumachers, your Senna's, et cetera, right? And when we talk about you know, Michael Schumacher, I mean, there, there's no doubt the way that, that Schumi dominated Formula One and dominated the sport for as long as he did. And there's an asterisk there as well. But I mean, when it comes to, you know, the, the things that we talk about that maybe takes a bit of the shine off of Schumacher's career is that, yeah, you kind of have like a you know, two parts as well, because he retired and then he came back of a couple of years to basically textbook to do Mercedes. Definition of the Michael, yeah. Textbook definition of the Michael Jordan, Washington yeah. Wizard years. Textbook it, definition. Exactly, because I, I don't really consider that sort of like that when he did Mercedes a solid to really kind of boot up their Formula One, their, their re-entry yeah. into yeah. Formula One yeah. project, because there, there's two very distinct periods for that. And I mean, because when... I think, okay, about Michael Schumacher and the asterisks beside his names. I'm thinking about the time he parked his car at Raskas or Tabak at Monaco during qualifying and got out, walked away, and brought the qualifying session to a close. I'm thinking about Jerez in, in 97 when he slammed and decided JV to, you know, to help win so he could win the disqualified championship. Disqualified so, from the championship. Yeah, he was disqualified. Yeah. And I mean, right up until he finished the, he retired the first time. I mean, the impact that he left on the sport was undeniable. The good, the bad, and the ugly, right? Whereas Seb's kind of been a, on a little bit on this slow decline for the for the couple of years. And I, I don't want to take away from the, his career because, like I say, I mean, the stats that he's had are, are amazing. You know, what he's done as well in the last couple of years since he got to Aston Martin, like you say, maybe they've uh, encouraged him to explore that uh, and, and express himself in ways that weren't uh, possible in, in the past. And, I think that's wonderful as well, you know, using his stature and his role to 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 try and make a difference. And you know, as uh, as Lewis made note of in his uh, social media posts as well. One of uh, one of our listeners reached out earlier today and said, "Hey, you know, share one of your good or bad. Share one of your Sebastian Vettel memories." And the one that that always comes to me, and, and there's there's a lot, right? Like obviously Canada 2019 when he gets that penalty and he's in Park Ferme and he switches the signs around, he puts the number one in front of his car. And, <laughs> yeah, and that obviously was awesome. some cool down room moments. But I really think back and. And I think time has been kind to this story. And I think in a lot of ways, it was overshadowed by the by the friction that was so publicly displayed between Lewis Hamilton and Nico Rosberg. But his time with Mark Webber was hyper, hyper intense. And, you know, you go back to the end of 2012. Of course, Sebastian Vettel's chasing his third title in a row. Uh, they go into Brazil. Uh, his teammate basically puts him into the wall. Two races later, four or five months later, they're in Malaysia. Asia right at the start of the 2013 season. Mark Webber is leading the race. They uh, they deploy multi-21 
one, which is the team order saying, hey, hold positions. Number two car, stay in front. Number one car, which was Sebastian Vettel, stay behind. So the team orders were for Sebastian Vettel to let Mark Webber win that race. And Vettel at that time was just on the track. And I think in F1, you have to be, your, your, your mindset needs to be a ruthless assassin. And he said, you know what? F this. I'm a three times world champion. This guy, my teammate, put me into the wall in Brazil. I am going to take him. And with 13 laps left, he ignored team orders, stormed past him, and, and went on to win the race. And of course, there was some... Uh, exciting juicy moments in the cool down room after that but that was that was one of the, the the memories that i have and that was one of the reasons i think in a lot of ways he was painted as the villain of a formula one and it took years for that that image to soften and of course he's done a lot to help soften that that image but you know mm -hmm. all the respect in the world to him because when he had the best car in the sport that renault powered red bull in 29 2009 10 11 12 13 he was ruthless and he delivered and he stacked wins and poles and did everything that was expected of him i think again just kind of to wrap up my thoughts i think the only suspect part of his career was the fact that he had two opportunities in 17 and 18 that he didn't deliver on. But at the same time, you can look back to two of those years when he was going toe-to-toe -to -toe with Fernando Alonso, and those mm -hmm. those could easily have been second-place finishes as well, and he managed to close those out. So I don't yep. know. I just I agree with that comment that Michael Schmidt had from Germany, which is one title with Ferrari would have changed the entire narrative of an already great's career. Yeah, uh, I mean, let's kind of like unpack that a bit and maybe put it into a little bit of a perspective. I mean, four world championships, you know, with, with Red Bull is outstanding. Four world champion, even one world championship is outstanding. Do you think guys like Jensen Button or Kimi Raikkonen are disappointed after they retired, walked away from Formula no, One that they only no, won it no. once? I mean, winning it once is an achievement in and of itself, but to win two, three, four, or multiple world championships is is impressive, impressive stuff. But, you know, having said that, you know, if, if you weight them differently, I mean, Ferrari's the big one, right? Because like I said earlier, it is the biggest team until uh, on the on the face of the planet. But, you know, let's look at that a little bit closer because sure, he didn't win that title when he was with a Scuderia. He wasn't able to bring that that title back and, and, and give it to the Tifosi. But let's let's put it a different way he challenged lewis hamilton he pushed mercedes at a time when nobody else was capable of uh, doing it uh, if they weren't in a silver mercedes car right i mean his teammate wasn't doing it it was either lewis or nico or or then a little bit afterwards of course you get a botas in there as well so i mean for for him to go in there and not just win an occasional race but legitimately challenge lewis hamilton there for a year or two i i think that maybe maybe that just doesn't get the, the the respect or the credit that that it deserves i mean sure he didn't get that title he didn't that that he coveted and he wanted but still he was able to do something that nobody else else to do when mercedes were at the at the at the peak of their power 
Yeah, that's an interesting point, right? I, I guess you could sell this a couple of different ways, which was his time with Ferrari was a failure. But on the other hand, you could just say, hey, it was bad timing, right? Like if you look at the Utah Jazz and the NBA, that that team with John Stockton and Carl Malone, they were excellent perennial 60-game winners. They, they just happened to peak when the Chicago Bulls were dominating the planet. And maybe that's the way you spin this, which is, hey, Sebastian Vettel in any other era would have won a championship or maybe more with the with Ferrari, but he just happened to come up against the ultra ultra dominant Mercedes team. I still think the chant the real opportunity maybe was 2017. If you look at 2017 after Italy after Monza, Lewis wins. Uh, Sebastian Vettel finishes third. After that race, the two are separated by three points, and they go into Singapore where Lewis wins and Sebastian Vettel DNFs. He DNFs again in Japan two races later, and the championship is is over. And of course, if you recall that season, that was that dramatic coming together in Singapore with his with his teammates in the wet. Uh, but he had a couple of opportunities. But you're right that you could spin this a different way and. Yeah, I, I think maybe I'm I'm mixed. Ultimately, I'm mixed. He's an all-time great top five talent, um, one of the absolute the dominant drivers of the of the modern era. But I just I feel like his legacy will be forever impacted by being unable to deliver a title to to Ferrari. And like Michael Schmidt said, that one title with Ferrari would have meant more than four with Red Bull. Yeah, yeah, no, that's uh, that that's a fair comment, but. You know, Tim and I talked about it on his show this afternoon, but now that uh, that seat uh, becomes open at Aston Martin, who who goes there? Who, who do oh, you think? Man. I'm not going to tell you, I'm not going to give away the content that Tim and I did earlier, but I'd love to hear your your thoughts on it. So this is this is where silly season goes into hyperdrive. And it's funny because I was talking to Trey Kirby a couple of days ago on the podcast, yep. which everyone will hear next week. And, and I was talking, I was kind of pulling back the curtain on our podcast a little bit. And I spoke to the fact that our ratings and interest in our show peaks in the off season. That's not where our quiet numbers are. Like we peak in January, February, March. And when the season starts, it slowly declines. It's because people are interested in driver contracts and they're interested in car unveils and they're interested in winter testing. Mm -hmm. We get a little bit of that silly season right now. And I'm kind of glad that if he was going to announce it, it happens now because from Aston Martin's perspective, it provides more opportunity for them to consider drivers. And technically, there should be more drivers available because there are other seats that will become available that haven't become available yet. So the timing is right for Aston Martin. And I think Sebastian Vettel is doing Lawrence Stroll a serious solid by announcing it now. I guess the question ultimately is going to be, what does Lawrence Stroll want? He signed Sebastian Vettel for two reasons. One, because he wanted a world champion in his car. It makes marketing the team and selling the team to sponsors a heck of a lot easier. And presumably, it was because he wanted somebody that Lance Stroll could learn from, either verbally in one-on-one conversations or by seeing his telemetry and his data that pours out of the car during practice, qualifying, and during the race. So I think it really comes down to that. What does Lawrence Stroll want? Does he want to go after another world champion? Does Fernando Alonso become available? That doesn't seem like a great opportunity to me because his ceiling's probably not super high and his runway's probably super short given that he's in his early 40s. Um, or does he want to take a chance on, on a younger driver? And there should be some available. Will it be Albon? Will it be a rookie like Piastri? 
I don't know, man, but we could speculate and have fun. And I think the rumor mill is going to go into hyperdrive for the next couple of months. My sense is that if I owned the team and the car was as uncompetitive as it is, I would be looking to bring in a young, low-cost driver with a huge upside. I don't think I would be looking to bring in an older driver with a shorter runway, but that's what I suspect. That's what I suspect uh, Lawrence Stroll is probably going to do. Do I have to wait till the racing pod drops to get your 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 thought on this? <laughs> well, actually, I got really silly, but at least uh, when, when it comes to silly season, that is. But so I, I won't give that uh, all away. What what I will say is that uh, I'm going to disagree with you on that. I, I think that that they might want to look towards an older driver. So I'm thinking of like your yeah, Fernando Alonso's, and you know, I'll throw I threw another name out there that uh, I don't I don't want to take away from from Tim's content uh, before it drops. But so go check that out. But. I, I just see, you know, thinking where that project is right now, and they've had two uncompetitive seasons, you know, in 2021 and 2022. I, I know that they've been, you know, it, it hasn't worked the way that they've really intended. And, you know, by having, you know, I just don't see like uh, a benefit of bringing somebody in that's say less experienced than Lance. I mean, Lance is a journeyman now, right? He, he's not this kid that's just broke into Formula One. He's got a number of seasons under his belt. Hopefully, he's learned a lot from Sebastian over the past uh, year and a half that they've been uh, together. But I, I'm leaning towards that. Uh, you know, if it's somebody like Fernando Alonso, I, I wouldn't be too surprised if uh, if that's what they end up doing to fill that seat for for, for 2022. I j- I just think that uh, Lawrence wants all the experience. I mean, he said that, you know, that they want to be at the top of forming the one. They want to be chasing wins. They want to be chasing championships. And even though like a guy like Fernando doesn't have the runway of, say, five or 10 years left in his career, I think just with the experience and the knowledge, just like Seb Vettel has, I, I think that it just maybe helps accelerate that process for um for for Aston Martin because I mean, Seb, I mean, he was with Red Bull when they dominated. He was with Ferrari. I mean this huge team that that has like this you know massive impressive record in formula one i mean he's a great driver himself so i I think that you know along those lines fernando alonso ticks a lot of those boxes right lance 112 formula one grand prix start we we got to stop talking about this guy as a kid right like he's been a full-time formula one driver since 2017 i think i'm I think the one thought I have around your Fernando Alonso comment is I just get flashbacks to McLaren 2015, 16, 17. Can he be content in a car that is as fundamentally as flawed as the AMR 22 or would have become the AMR 23? I just, I don't know if that's the right combination is an uncompetitive car at the very tail end of Fernando's career. But then again, maybe he doesn't have any other opportunities because Alpine could be looking in a different direction at the end of the season as well. Yeah, you just don't know either, right? I mean, maybe he sees the writing on the wall. I mean, the the, the one thing that we know that we've seen with uh, Otmar Safnauer is that when he was team principal at Force India slash Racing Point is that he was able to put together a fairly competitive package uh, with drivers and cars with very humble resources compared to a lot of the other teams. Now he's at a major uh, player um, that that has drastically underperformed, and I I don't think that's a below the belts or unfair comment or, or criticism of Alpine slash Renault. They you know with the resources that they have available to them. 
they should have been doing a lot more over the past uh, several years since they came back into Formula One and they sadly have missed the mark by a, a long, long shot. So, you know, and and obviously I have no idea into what the thought process of Otmar Safnauer is, but he, I, I think he's a very capable person. I think he knows Formula One. I think he understands what it, it takes to to run a team. And I don't think he's a guy that's afraid to make changes if uh, if need be. And if uh, he decides that what is it, whatever it is, sixty eight year old Fernando Alonso <laughs> isn't in the plans for Alpine for next year, he's gonna he's gonna pull that uh, trigger and put like an Oscar Piastri in the car, whoever it might be. Right? I think there's if he's got better options available to it, I, I have full conf- confidence that that Otmar will make the right call for the team. That's a really great point, and I, I had never that never occurred to me that. That Fernando Alonso being there, that isn't an Otmar signing. That that he in hired or inherited Fernando Alonso, and ultimately he's not beholden to him, nor has any of that romantic relationship kind of ties or bonds mm-hmm. to Fernando that that other people might have. So that's an interesting point as well, and that could also have been part of Otmar's agreement, which is, hey, I need to have complete and total autonomy when it comes to personnel decision, including drivers, and that in itself may have spelled the end for Fernando Alonso at that team. So so maybe if you're Nando, maybe you try to get out ahead of one of these things to try and like maybe keep the the mystique or the, uh, you know, the keep your reputation intact, and, you know, maybe you make that move, if and we're purely speculating here. Rather than being, you know, forced out the door by the team saying, you know what, we're we're going to buy out your contract or we're not going to renew your contract. I don't know exactly what his status is next year because, number one, I don't remember what the what the terms were if they even announced it. And number two, we all know that Formula One, you know, contracts are about as you know, you know, sacrosanct as like this Tim Hortons napkin that I've got next to my computer here. You know, <laughs> they they teach- well. Well, the good news is. The good news is we actually have a Fernando Alonso story lined up later in this outline, later Perfect. in the podcast we'll that we can talk about. Yeah, so yeah. It's, it's all lined up. Yeah, so who knows? Maybe that decision might get made for him. And the best thing for Fernando, if he stays in Formula One, is to to try and make a switch and make it look like it's in his uh, you know his best interest to, to do so. Anyways, we have talked about Sebastian Vettel for such a long time, and rightfully so, to give him the the airtime that, uh, that his impressive career career deserves and but there was equally big news with and why is it red bull these guys always seem to creep up to be like in the headline each and every week yes i feel like we should probably take a break because this next topic is going to be a juicy one okay well we'll take a break i'll insert one earlier in the show (laughs) because we never put one earlier in. so let's do that we'll talk about red bull these guys always make the headlines on the show each and every week so we'll do that in just a moment so guys don't go away we'll be right back after a short word from our sponsors when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. 
Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Okay, welcome back. And yes, back to, I guess, what is uh, the show fodder is anything to do with Red Bull racing on this podcast. So this is kind of like the, the worst, best kept secret in Formula One because it was rumored that announcement uh, of a partnership between Red Bull Racing and Porsche would be made at the Austrian Grand Prix, which took place a couple of weeks ago. That obviously didn't happen. But there was a document that was published in Morocco's Conseil de la Concurrence today that said that Porsche has an intention to acquire up to a 50% stake in Red Bull's Formula One operation ahead of their planned entry into the sport in 2026. So this uh, proposed deal applies to the Red Bull technology uh, business that is the the constructor for Red Bull uh, uh, Racing. And basically, that covers most of their uh, Formula One activities. And it's not the the Red Bull powertrains. Mark, I know you've been dying to talk about this one. We've been texting about it and talking about it like for the last uh, day or so. Just just have at it. I don't I don't want to steal your thunder, my friend. No, 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 no. I think you did a fantastic job of summarizing this. And we've alluded to this before because it's been reported. Obviously, we've just aggregated and shared what we know. But uh, it, it seems more evident than ever that this union between Porsche and Red Bull is is about to happen. And it sounds as though the two have begun submitting paperwork to uh, anti-competition and competition bureaus and antitrust competition bureaus globally. So obviously within the European Union, international. And one of these documents leaked out from Morocco, and in it, it's basically a document outlining Porsche's intention to secure a 50% stake in Red Bull Advanced Technologies, which, as you just described, is effectively the Formula One team. So this is not, this is not for a second, a marketing exercise or an engine supply deal. Porsche is coming in as an equal partner. So the team presumably will be known as Porsche Red Bull or Red Bull Porsche, but Red Bull, the actual energy drinks company and Porsche, obviously the automotive manufacturer under the Volkswagen Auto Group umbrella, will each own an equal stake in this organization. So they'll both have the same amount of skin in the game, which is fascinating. Now, the reason, apparently, the reason that Red Bull was such an attractive acquisition target for Porsche was this. In 2026, whatever team Porsche bought or whatever team Porsche started would need to have a brand new power unit. And Porsche would be the one obligated to build said power unit. Now, they have no test benches, they have no dynos, and they have nothing ready to go. The reason that Red Bull was such an interesting, exciting acquisition target for them is because of Red Bull powertrains. So Red Bull, of course, has started powertrains division. Originally, it was intended to inherit all that IP from Honda, use it until the end of 2025, then have their own engine ready for 2026, which was developed independently of that IP. That didn't happen. So the only thing that this Red Bull powertrains division is doing right now is getting ready and starting to lay the groundwork for that 2026 power unit. So right now, 
Porsche comes in, they immediately secure a 50% stake in this team. They're ready to good. So they're going to be able to start injecting their resources, their people, and really start to meld with, with Red Bull. But for them, this is perfect. They get to secure an equal ownership stake in a championship team. They don't have to build the infrastructure necessary to support the team because it's already there in the factory, the chassis, the power unit. It's all ready to go. So it's turnkey in a lot of ways. So I think this is a phenomenal, phenomenal target. The question, of course, is what's going to happen to Alpha Tauri? And you and I have talked in the past about the fact that Alpha Tauri could be a really great acquisition target for Honda, whether Red Bull's ready to let them go, because that was effectively what would have to happen there. I don't know. But the document that was printed in Morocco seems to imply that those Porsche slash Red Bull powertrains power units will be provided or made available to Alpha Tauri hmm. as well. Although, of course, Alpha Tauri could be renamed by the time we get to 2026. But exciting. Now, I feel terrible because I feel like we've been talking about this for months and months and months. And every time it feels like the announcement the formal announcement is on the cusp. It doesn't happen. But this is the first time we have seen a formal legal document talking about this. Now, if you have YouTube, who, what am I talking about? Who doesn't have YouTube? The race <laughs> has a really great video that they published called The Key Details Revealed About Porsche Buying Into Red Bull in F1. I would highly recommend you check that out. And on racer.com, Chris Medlin also did a really great job of summarizing what this is going to look like, that Porsche has effectively agreed to purchase a 50% stake in Red Bull technology, um, which will, of course, involve a 10-year commitment to the team and to the sport which is what the FIA and the Formula One Commercial Rights Group desperately wants because what they don't want to see is a team like BMW, Toyota come into the sport, make a lot of noise, and then exit quickly. They want to see these new teams make a commitment. So mm -hmm. we're getting closer and closer and closer. Where it's going to get really interesting, of course, is going to be Audi and Sauber because Sauber is an engine customer. They're buying their power units from Ferrari. Audi, as has been reported, has every design and every intention to develop their own power unit. So they will be starting from scratch. And when they do take over Sauber, they will not have the benefit of having a powertrains division ready to go that's turnkey. They are going to have to build that. So in a sense, Ferrari has a head start on, uh, on their, their corporate sister, Audi. You know, it's amazing that, uh, you know, when you outline it so nicely, the difference between Porsche's, you know, reported route into Formula One for 26 compared to what Audi's going to do. And they both fall under that that VW umbrella. They couldn't be more different than, 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 than one another. I think it's absolutely fascinating. It's, it's going to be really fun to watch to see how this shakes out over the weeks and months ahead. All right. Okay. So the next one is, uh, well, let's talk about this now. This might uh, be a little bit better for our race uh, preview a little bit later on. But what what the heck? James Allison from uh, Mercedes, who is he, their, their, their chief technical officer, has hinted that there are going to be plenty more improvements and upgrades coming to the W13 as they try to get back to the front of the grid in Formula One. Now, Mark, do you think that there's something to this? Is this uh, is this James Allison just trying to maybe dispel fears and doubts in the Mercedes fan fandom? Is he sort of puffing his chest out a little bit? Uh, how 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 confident are you in his assertions that um, you know 
that there's going to be more to come or better things to come with their with their upgrades. To me, comments like this are 90% psychological warfare. That that if I'm a team, I'm typically going to be as concerned externally when I'm addressing the media, I am going to be extremely conservative about what's in the development pipeline. Now, internally with my drivers, I am going to be reassuring them every second of every day that there are upgrades and improvements coming to the car. But I, I want to be conservative externally because the last thing you want to do is go to the market, you, the last thing you want to do is go to the fans and the media and over-promise on potential upgrades and then under-deliver because that just sets you up for failure in the media and it sets you up for criticism. So when he comes out and he's so he's so excitable and commit, committable, what does committable mean? That's not a word. Yeah, I think <laughs> you just made up so a word confident. there, dude. It's 1030. We're getting there. Um <laughs> If he's so confident about the fact that they're going to be able to deliver and he's committing to these upgrades, it means a couple of things. That one, they are coming, or two, to your earlier point, that they're psychologically just trying to get in the head of of their competitors. But I also don't believe that he wouldn't say this if they weren't coming. Now, this leads me down a, a separate kind of path very quickly, I promise, because one of our listeners actually sent me the story and and her question at the time was, you know what, as these upgrades are coming in, how does the FIA know how much these teams have spent? Like, are they submitting receipts to the FIA after <laughs> they buy each of these parts? And the FIA is calculating the, the cost cap on the fly. Alas, that's not really what happens. And the FIA doesn't really have the ability to properly study the books until usually February, March, April of the following calendar year. So if a team does overspend and ultimately they're going to be sanctioned, we typically won't know about that until the following year. I do hope and would love to get to a point where somehow we were able to calculate team expenditures in real time. Real time audits. I just don't audits. think that's necessarily real time. Yeah, totally, man. Like, I want to counter on F1.com. I want to go and know <laughs> how much every team has spent at any given minute. But ultimately, I don't, I don't think that's realistic. I think that would be incredibly complex because I think it's one thing to cut an invoice to your carbon fiber supplier for uh, the carbon fiber that you're going to use for your monocoque chassis. It's something else entirely when you're trying to calculate the value of the computational fluid dynamics models you're running through your server farm. You know, I, I was just uh, thinking, and I, I'm just going to do a real quick uh, conversion on the fly here, uh, just for comparison's sake. So as, as everybody knows, I'm a huge a cycling fan. You know, we just uh, finished the men's uh, Tour de France uh, last week. Jonas Vingegaard of Team Jumbo Visma won his first uh, Tour de France. The Tour de France Femmes is going on at the moment, which is also equally as exciting. But where it kind of ties into Formula One is on the cost cap portion. One of the big teams is Ineos Grenadiers. Ineos is also a, um, a sponsor of uh, Mercedes. And I think there, were, there was a discussion, was it a year or so ago, that they either wanted to buy the team or buy right, a bigger... Buy the team. Yeah, buy right, the team outright. Right. Anyways, Ineos is um, one of the sponsors of Ineos Grenadiers. Grenadiers also a, a car make. Anyways, for their team, they spend 43 million euros a year. That's one of those interesting stats that comes out uh, during the tour. So you convert that, that works out to about roughly 44 million US dollars per year. And that's for a cycling, like a, like an elite level cycling team. So, I mean, that that's a huge amount of money. But when you kind of like... 
you know, compare that to Formula One, you know, I, I know it's still like a like a hundred billion dollars more, but you know that doesn't seem like such a huge gap. Or, or is it? Uh, is it just me? Obviously, it's a huge gap. But I mean, I was surprised that Ineos Grenadiers are spending forty four million dollars a year, like to to run that program. Whereas the cost cap on, on, in Formula One is like, uh, you know, like what what is it right now? Is it one forty, one thirty five, one thirty? I because you know, it's been going down, right? So, I mean, the thing is, like, yeah, years ago, I'd be like, ah, you know, whatever, you know, Ferrari, Mercedes, they're spending 10 times that and even more. But now that gap has decreased so much. It, it just sort of, it, it just sort of like, as you were talking about that just now, like the, the, the cost gap and everything, it just kind of like really popped into my mind, just like how that's, you know, and, and that makes it, a, you know, exciting. And I guess, uh, interesting for people like audi and vw but anyways i've kind of gotten away from where i wanted to go to next i <laughs> apologize it's usually me but that's what we do yeah, the, the tangents the irrelevant tangents are bonus to added you know free value on this show uh to go back to yeah, fernando start with 27 minutes of moto gp yes. and then seven <laughs> minutes of the nba and exactly. then we talk about the weather in vancouver exactly. and then we start talking formula one yeah which we fitted at the last 10 minutes of the show yet people come yeah, back yeah. every week um going back to fernando alonso he said all f1 seats or open f1 seats are an option for 2023 i think we kind of broke that down a little bit do we do we actually know who might be open i think williams is probably one that might might be uh, all all the top teams are, are pretty much set. McLaren, you know, that seems to be a bit of an ongoing saga that it will, that it won't. And, you know, Ricardo's kind of committed to, to saying that he's not going anywhere. I mean, wh- why else would he say that he's going to go? He's not going to say anything else otherwise. But, you know, when... when go ahead. If I was a millionaire, I would bet every penny that he will never, ever step foot in the McLaren Technology Center again. Not after 2007, not after his most recent run. Oh, yeah. So I think it's yeah. safe to say that that one's not going to happen. But I, I wonder what his opportunities ultimately are going to be. And you're right. There are going to be some openings. Obviously, the Sebastian Vettel seat's going to open up. There won't be a change at, at obviously, Ferrari or Red Bull or Mercedes. Both seats, maybe one of the seats, could open up at Williams. I feel like in recent weeks, uh, Mick Schumacher has absolutely secured his seat. He's shown something to that team into Formula One that they desperately needed to see when he had his back-to-back points finishes. I, I wonder where this could be, my friend. I, I wonder where this could ultimately be. Like, I yeah. feel like he's running out of options. Yeah, same. I, I think that, uh, you know, Haas, who have obviously had their issues, I think that they've got a, a pretty good driver pairing in K-Mag and Mick Schumacher. I think that Alpha probably is not an option. I think that they got a, a you know a really good uh, one-two punch with with Valtteri Bottas. I think that maybe the results haven't been there, but I think he's had a pretty good year with that team so far. I mean, and he's the perfect kind of driver that stage in his career to to go to a team like that. Then you got uh, Joe, who's uh, you know he's obviously a rookie. He's you know I mean his potential is is unknown. And I think if you're both, uh, you know, Joe and and and, and Botas, with uh, you know all this talk about uh, Audi coming in, you know, do you really want to to be going somewhere else? I mean, you know, that that's that's a logical. Both of those guys are be like, you know, sitting there at the the proverbial bag of popcorn, waiting, you know, you're watching this one unfold because I mean that would be like an exciting project for a rookie 
and a veteran alike to, to get involved with. I mean, who would not want to be a part of an Audi into Formula One project? I mean, I'm putting my hand up and shockingly, I'm not a Formula One driver, but oh, yeah, by the way, we are available, <laughs> We're available. If you need an official, if you need an official Audi F1 podcast, <laughs> we are available. Call our uh, agents. Send an email to scuderiaf1pod at gmail.com. But let's go down the teams quickly. So sure. Red Bull, not an option, nope. right? Mercedes, not an option. Ferrari, not an option. Williams, maybe. Yep. But I don't know if I don't know if Dalton is willing to splash the cash that Fernando may ultimately des- demand. Alfa Romeo, I I think obviously um, Bottas is under contract, and I think they probably really like what they've seen from Guan Yu, and I, I also so. don't think that they're willing to invest. And you got to think now that if Audi's coming in, they're going to want autonomy over driver decisions, and I don't know that that necessarily fits their timelines who else we've got Haas probably not Matt K-Mag had that big deal Mick's going to be back next year I think that's an absolute certainty Alpha Tauri Gasly Yuki I can't imagine that team that organization would ever ditch somebody from their academy for a driver on the wrong side of 40 so probably not uh Alpha Tauri who else have we got left Alpine that's definitely an option who else I I think we've pretty much uh, covered them all yeah so I think safe to say that his oh Aston Martin. So you're, you're yeah, right. Aston I think Martin, it really course, comes yeah. down then to two teams, Aston Martin. I and I think it comes down to what Lawrence Stroll wants. And you're right, Lawrence Stroll, big ego, the demand of having a world champion on that team, and for all the reasons that that might logically make sense, especially when you talk about marketing, that might work. Or staying with Alpine, a team that's familiar with him and and a team that he's familiar with. So really, you're right. It comes down to two teams, Alpine and Aston Martin. Yeah, uh, totally. Okay, uh, next one. Um, Sergio Perez, the Red Bull drivers called for lifetime bans on uh, abusive uh, behavior, and um, you know, again, I think this is good that uh, that people uh, are speaking up. I mean, you know, this is something that that we've spoken out quite a bit on in uh, the last uh, number of weeks and, and months. But uh, Sergio had the uh, the following to say: "Quote: I think it's certainly important. We all do our bit. Drivers, teams, media, fans. There are a lot of good fans in Formula One." Those that they don't represent us as a sport, they don't share our values, and they are not welcome here. It's simple as that, so I do agree that we can all do more. Uh, I think it's very important that we don't generalize because it's very rare from our fans that follow our sport to hear something like that. So we definitely should hopefully ban them for life. Don't welcome them again because they don't represent who we are as a sport and they don't share our values at all. So, but at the same time, we have great fans out there with great values. And I think that a few fans shouldn't be able to even embarrass our sport like that. End quote. So, you know, I, I think that you and I were a little bit... I, I don't know, maybe skepticals a little bit too hard. I think we just sort of question maybe the sincerity of the whole We Races One campaign that uh, Formula One introduced. Just so you know, what, what was it? Was it a gesture? There's something to to it. But I think that in general, there's been this sort of unspoken movement within the sport from, you know, like team executives to drivers to media people like us just you know standing up and saying you know this isn't cool this is not acceptable this is not what decent people do people you know decent people do not make racist or homophobic or misogynistic uh, comments they don't you know you know engage in that kind of activity and it's it's encouraging 
as as shocking as disappointing to hear these things happening, it is encouraging that different people are standing up and saying, "Hey, hey, hey! You know, hang on. You people do not represent us. You people are the minority. The rest of us are inclusive. The rest of us are welcoming. The rest of us want to enjoy Formula One as, as one big family. And anyone that shares our open and welcoming values and attitudes, you know, come on in. You know, the rest of you, you know, you got to go and you know." Go check your own behavior because you guys are not the norm. We're, we're the norm. You know, th- this is this is what we stand for. You know, the other day I was having a conversation with my wife and we, we'd done a podcast a couple of weeks ago and we talked about this. And like you, I've been blessed to have gone to many, many, many Grand Prix. And I, I was saying at the time, I think that I'd never experienced anything like this at any of the Grand Prix I'd ever been at. I'd never seen this type of comment. I'd never seen uh, the sexualization of fans targeting women in the audience and young girls. Like I'd never seen any of that, but I'm also a 40-year-old white dude, and I might just experience (laughs) these things differently than other people or might not be alert or cognizant of these things happening. So I asked my wife, who is a uh, Middle Eastern woman, so Mm -hmm. obviously a person of color, unlike me, and I asked her, you know, you've been to all these Grand Prix, you've been to all these Grand Prix with me. Have you ever seen anything like this? Did you ever feel unsafe? And, you know, the good thing is uh, she had it. She's like, never, I've never seen anything like that. And what I'm saying is not that what was reported to have happened in Austria didn't happen. It absolutely did, but that it is absolutely a minority of F1 fans. And the good news is, I think 99% of F1 fans are like you and me, that we want to get together, we want to celebrate the sport, Mm -hmm. and we want to be inclusive. And I think it should be easy, therefore, to stamp out these types of folks that are there to cause problems and want to be exclusive and want to be all of these terrible things that I think a lot of us had hoped society had moved beyond 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago. So I think the good news is that overwhelmingly F1 fans are like our audience. Awesome, fun, inclusive, accommodating. They're not these folks that we saw in in Austria. And I think hopefully the sport will do the things necessary to make sure that we don't see something like this again. Yeah, you know, it is interesting, right? I mean, no doubt strides have been made. And, you know, the the one thing that I've sort of become aware of is my own privileged position within society that you know I wasn't really made aware of before and you know I'm I'm more and more cognizant and aware of that as time goes on and it, it just bothers me that you know how the playing field isn't level for, for for other people and you know it's just not right and for for people to go out of their way to be exclusive on purpose you know really does not sit well with me and you know sadly as you know as we've seen recently that despite advances that have been made in recent years that you know there's still a way to, uh, ways to go and there's there's always room for improvement and and hopefully this becomes a thing of the past very very soon so yeah. we shall see I just I want to yeah, agree sorry, with that point real quick I I had that honestly as I got older I had that exact same realization that we grew up in a society where I think you and I take for granted and assume that everyone has the same opportunities mm-hmm. to develop personally, professionally that we do. And and it really dawned on me as I've gotten older that 100%, I have, 
I have benefited from the system and the system being set up historically, institutionally mm -hmm. to, to benefit people that kind of fit the mold that you and I fit, which are these kind of white middle-class males. And I think as I've gotten older, I've become more painfully aware of the fact that I've benefited. Um, and I think that anything we can do to help make society more inclusive. And we're an F1 show. We're here to talk about an entertainment product, but there's no reason why we can't do things to make this sport more accessible and broadly appealing and inclusive as possible, as I think we try to do with our audience. Yeah, and 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 rightfully so. I mean, we, we enjoy it. We want to share it with uh, with, with everybody else. And, everybody, and everybody. Without any barriers, without any, yeah, buts, you know, because of this, because exactly. of like unfair reasons. Exactly. I mean, that's, never going to come from from my mouth or your mouth i mean it's just not acceptable uh, attitudes or behaviors to have in in any decade but let alone now we got to move forward as a as a society okay let's uh, start uh, moving this one along because we're already like uh, an hour and 10 minutes into it so why don't we just uh pick well let's i'm just going to pick one more here out of the news things then we'll go into the tr the the race preview some of the things here are just going to have to stay on the i guess on the part of the agenda that we we just didn't quite make it to this week but that's uh, all good you didn't make the cut it didn't make You're the going cut back to formula two but th this one i think is uh, is topical i think it's a uh, it's interesting because it's kind of juicy and that is a uh, you know the, the the whole f1 to vegas thing it's supposed to run the weekend before uh, thanksgiving so hammy uh, take it away yeah, so we're all eagerly anticipating, probably more than in ever any year ever, the provisional calendar for the following year. So typically, Formula One, the FIA, will drop what they call a provisional calendar for the next season, sometime around August or September, and then they'll post a final definitive schedule in October. We are all eagerly awaiting the provisional calendar because we have no idea what it's going to look like. Mm -hmm. the spa coming back? Probably not. Is France coming back? Who knows? Where's Qatar going to fit in? We don't we know. We don't know. Where's Vegas going to be? It's going to be November. Is it going to be the season finale? Are they going to go Brazil, Las Vegas, back to the Middle East? Like, There's so many questions to be asked about next year's calendar. Is China coming back? So we're all eagerly, eagerly, eagerly waiting. Now, uh, Sports Business Journal ran an article that was published by Adam Stern. Adam Stern does some fantastic work. We retweet his stuff all of the time, uh, he's managed to get a hold of some paperwork, some documentation, a letter of intent that was posted online last week and subsequently verified both by SBGA and by the Las Vegas local municipal authority. The LOI, and I'm going to quote here, the LOI is pre is a preliminary, mostly non-binding document for March 28th, whose terms are subject to change, but it provides an early roadmap for how the Las Vegas Grand Prix event may look. The race, which gives the U.S. a world-leading three-annual races was formally announced two days later on March 30th. The document lays out what will be expected of the sides for the five years term of the deal from 2023 to 2027. For example, Liberty Dice, the new subsidiary that Liberty Media set up to run the race, agreed that no on-track action will take place later than 4.30 a.m. Eastern, 1.30 a.m. Pacific time, which is an indicator of just how late Formula One is looking at running 
the night race. And then it goes into some logistical details, demands that Formula One has of Vegas, et cetera. So a couple of things here. One, Liberty Device, this is the race organizer, which is a splinter division of Liberty Media. So in this case, Liberty Media themselves is sanctioning the race to a company that they've started, which is pretty interesting. There's some other things here as well about the fact that the city is going to be providing huge financial concessions to make this happen. The city is going to be providing huge, huge logistical concessions to help support the race, everything from ambulances to cranes. And the other thing that's really interesting about this as well is that they are going to do some very, very aggressive campaigns to make sure that other people that aren't sanctioned media partners or advertising partners don't find a way to get their marketing message into the broadcast itself. So for me, this is thrilling. I'm excited. I want to see what this looks like. It's obviously going to be a road race. We've had mixed experiences with them. But in terms of providing a world-class festival uh, environment, I think this is going to be interesting. And it's going to be really interesting to see where ultimately this race lands on the calendar permanently. Is it going to be the season finale? Is it going to switch places with Abu Dhabi? Is it going to be the second to last race? And then just how late is the race going to happen Pacific Standard Time. So they've got commitments with the city that they could run cars up to 1.30 a.m. Pacific Time, meaning that they could start the race as late as about 11.30 p.m. Pacific Time. But it'll be super interesting to see. I can't wait to get more details on this one. That'll be cool. But let's put it this way. Nobody does it the way that Vegas does it. So, you know, whatever that they're going to do and however they're going to do it is going to be very, very unique with like a a Las Vegas flair that that nobody else can match. And, you know, honestly, that would be kind of cool to have a race that late. I mean, night races are nothing unusual. I mean, they've been on the calendar for years and years and years at many different tracks. And, you know, I look forward to the night races uh, every year. It would just be very strange in our time zone i I guess that uh, would they be mountain i guess vegas would be an hour ahead from pacific would it not hour ahead right 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 but still regardless it would be strange to be sitting down to watch a race like it's a 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock on a saturday night knowing that this is this is not in the middle east this is not in asia (laughs) this is literally only like an hour and a half flights out of vancouver maybe a little bit more i mean it's it's pretty darn close as but uh, you know it, it would be pretty neat at the same time is the time zone that's going to make this one challenging right like you talk about austin 2 p.m uh, local time in, in Texas. Well, that's 9, 10 p.m. for most of Europe, maybe even earlier, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 p.m. Eastern. On a Sunday night, you're going to get a really great European audience. Uh, this race, of course, it's going to have to be a night race. And of course, at dusk in November, you're talking 5, 6 p.m. So maybe a race time of 7 p.m. at the very earliest. That puts you into the wee hours of the morning in Europe. You're going to get zero audience. So maybe you have to bump this up to midnight. So you push it into the morning hours in Europe. I guess the other thing that we should probably wait to see as well is, is the race going to happen on Sunday Or is the race going to happen on Saturday so people in Europe in the Middle East can watch it on Sunday? Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if it goes on a Saturday night uh, just to take into account that the the, the global audience, because when when it comes to Formula One now... It's, uh, you know, that has to be taken into consideration. I mean, it's different than the NFL, right? You know that basically every Sunday games kick off at one o'clock, regardless where it is across the country, right? I mean, there's there's night games and things like that, you know, like for Thursday night and Sunday night and, and things like that. But I mean, typically games starts 
at one o'clock on a, on a Sunday afternoon. I know I'm, I'm, I'm generalizing a little bit, but I mean, it, it's a little bit different when you basically only have like a, a three hour time spread compared to a global time spread and trying to find a work that, or, you know, a, a time that works for, for basically all your big uh, audiences. So, hey, I, I got to take a drink of water here. Hammy, you pick it up uh, while, while I wet my whistle here. Yeah, absolutely. One other thing I think I'll add quickly, just while you're getting a drink and before we move on to the race review, of course, we've got Hungary, Budapest coming this race weekend, is Deckel Spotters, which is another really great follow on, on Twitter. They are reporting that the Aston Martin Vantage F1 safety car is now adorned with Aramco branding added just in time for the Hungarian Grand Prix. The Aramco logos can be seen on the doors, the rear wing, the hood, and the bumper. So we've reported, and again, by reported, I mean aggregated news that we've collected from other sources <laughs> that Aramco, of course, is a principal sponsor of the Aston Martin Formula One team. Uh, there is apparently a clause that they've secured, or at least a clause that the Saudi Arabian Sovereign Wealth Fund has secured that would enable them to buy a chunk of the greater Aston Martin organization, including, of course, the F1 team and the road car team. And of course, Aramco is now a title sponsor of Formula One, and of course, is the title sponsor of the race in Jeddah. So Aramco continues to deepen its relationship with the sport and try to get its branding in as many places as possible. Yeah, isn't that interesting, eh? Um, I, I think I'll save this. Uh, I, I was going to uh, interject something there, but I think I'll save that uh, for, for the very end because I think it might be a, a funny way to kind of end the show here. But Let's talk about the, uh, the the race itself. It's hungry this weekend. Typically, the race that uh, is it's one of those benchmark races in the year. We always know that usually it's Australia to start the year. Then we have Hungary, which kind of brings the first half of the season to the close before you get into the summer break in August. Then you go to Spa, and then you go through the latter half of the calendar, and then you finish off at Yas at Abu Dhabi in uh, well end of November nowadays in the beginning of uh, December. So it's kind of we're at this point in the season that we we're, we're going to be able to catch our collective breath for a couple of weeks and just to kind of reflect on what's transpired in the first half of 2022. Obviously it's been, I mean, the championship doesn't, if you just, if you just look at the standings, right, as we did off the top of the, the, the show and you didn't actually know what happened, you'd think, Oh, it's been a pretty bland and maybe not a very interesting year, but it, it's been full of drama for different, uh, different reasons. But the, that having you know being said, that this is an interesting track because it doesn't really provide a lot of opportunities for for overtaking, or it never used to. Now it is it's got some very tight, compact uh, corners. It's got some slow sections, and in the past, I mean, there was a good good chance that if you had a, a quick car, and or you didn't even necessarily have to be really that much faster than the guys behind you but you just had to have like enough just to keep yourself in front you could almost basically go from start to finish if you're on pole and basically have a good opportunity to win that race but it'll be interesting this weekend to see whether the the new cars are suited to this uh, track the hungaro ring or not because they they have what was the two DRS zones I think right I don't think there's any talk about adding a third but there there isn't really very many the areas on this track that you can add it and I'll, I'll just uh, pull up the the, the track stats uh, myself here so I can just uh, read them off the the, the Hungaro ring is uh, 
4.38 kilometers or 2.72 miles. It's a 70 lap race. It's 306.63 kilometers or 190 and a half miles long. Uh, lap time or pole position last year was set by Lewis with a 115.419. The podium was, well, I mean, last year was a bit of an outlier. I mean, Esteban Ocon, uh, one, uh, Lewis Hamilton was second. I mean, great. I mean, it was a great result for, for Alpine and Esteban Ocon and, uh, Carlos Sainz was a third for Ferrari. The fastest lap was set by, uh, Pierre Gasly and the Alpha Tauri. This is a race. I mean, it started when uh, Hungary was still a communist country. I mean, it it it's we've had thirty seven Grand Prix at the Hungaro Ring, um, but there was a long hiatus. I mean, they they held one way back in nineteen thirty six. The winning or the the driver that won the very first Hungarian Grand Prix was the one and only Tazio Nuvolari, who was driving a uh, Alfa Romeo way back in. Uh, in 1936 and then it uh, was uh, rebooted in 1986 and we've been there ever since so 36 uh, years in a in a row well i guess uh well not for 20 well i guess we missed a year because of uh of covid of course or didn't oh we no, did no, it. we no, didn't we were there no we were we there, were there yep, in 2020 we were there. of course yeah that's one of the the only tracks that um you know has been on the calendar all these years yeah good good catch there mark but it's interesting uh the, the winningest uh constructor there is a uh, mclaren they've uh, got eight victories uh, sorry 11 victories there but not since 2012 um uh, williams and ferrari have seven wins Mercedes have five and they've won uh, all of those since uh, 2013 red bull have won there only twice the most winningest driver in the history of the Hungarian Grand Prix is, of course, Lewis Hamilton, because he's the winningest driver at many circuits. Michael Schumacher won there four times. Ayrton Senna won there three times. And a whole bunch of guys, including Sebastian Vettel, Mika Hakkinen, Jacques Villeneuve, Damon Hill, Nelson Piquet, they won there twice. So, Mark, what are you looking for this weekend at the uh, Hungarian Grand Prix? Yeah, I just, I wanted to add, because I spent a lot of time thinking about the Hungarian Grand Prix and doing a little bit of half-assed internet (laughs) research, because um, I've actually been invited to, and I'm not cheating on our show by any means, I'm spreading the gospel that is the Scuderia F1 podcast, but I might be jumping or I'm scheduled to jump on a different podcast this weekend (gasps) to talk about the race. I know, gas, gas, my friend, (laughs) my friend, you've been on Sky so many times. I know, I know, it's all good, Um, all good. A couple of thoughts. One, I find the track, the event, really interesting from a business and political kind of sense. And you 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 touched on it a couple of minutes ago that this race actually started in 1986 while the Soviet Union was still barely together. It was still holding together at that point. So it was a huge coup for Bernie Eccleston to get a race behind the proverbial Iron Curtain. Now, it's not where he wanted to go. I think ultimately he wanted to have a street race in either Moscow or St. Petersburg. And then ultimately he wanted a street race in one of the big parks in Budapest. That didn't happen. Local political authorities wanted to build a dedicated circuit. They managed to do it a bargain basement price. They threw it together in eight months. And with the exception of a couple of modifications. They extended the main straight by 200 meters in 2003 to promote overtaking and did some tweaks to turn 12, I think, turn 12. It is largely the same track that it's been since 1986. And that's a bad thing. And it's a bad thing because if you look at the cars that we were rocking in 1986, they were significantly smaller than the cars we have today. If you go back to 1986, the average length of a Formula One car was about 170 inches. Now they're 227 inches Hmm. long. The other challenge is an F1 car in 1986 
about 1,200 pounds. Now they're about 1,700 pounds. The cars are longer and they're significantly heavier. So I think one of the things I'm going to be looking at this weekend is that this track does not make for great racing and it does not present a great number of overtaking opportunities. The question is going to be, what does this do when you introduce the cars that in theory should be able to follow each other more closely because they're generating downforce on the underside of the car? Are we going to see closer following? Are we potentially going to see some more overtaking opportunities? I don't know. I think what we're ultimately going to see is the same thing we typically see, which is whoever qualifies on pole is probably going to have a significant and very meaningful chance of winning the Grand Prix. And I think that's exciting because it amplifies the excitement of qualifying, but at the same time, it de-emphasizes the value and the excitement of the Grand Prix on the Sunday. So to me, this, this track is a bit of a relic and I think it needs to be significantly reworked. And at the same time, we talk about the fact that Spa is dropping off the calendar. Mm -hmm. Spa is dropping off the calendar, but the Hungora ring is going to persist. And I think that this track managed to secure a contract extension at the right time. So they sealed the deal a couple of years ago to keep hosting until 2026. And then effectively as a reward for hosting a race during the pandemic, uh, the FIA and Formula One tacked on an extra year for 2027. Because mm. of course in 2020, they had to host it without any fans. So I think as a reward, Formula One added an extra year to that deal. So this race is going to be on the calendar at least through 2027. But I think for me, if it wants to persist and it wants to be relevant on the Formula One calendar, they need to significantly invest in hospitality, fan experience, media accommodation, sure. paddocks, the garages. It needs work. It is a relic on the calendar. Yep. The challenge is I'm not sure what they can do to improve the racing because if you look at this on the map, the track itself is effectively constructed at the basin of a valley. So mm -hmm. everyone looks down on this track I like the fact there's some elevation, but I don't know what they can do to improve the racing. So I think this weekend's going to be interesting because maybe the changes that we've introduced to the cars as part of the 2022 regulations will increase the likelihood of tight following and racing. I, I don't know. But if it's not going to be great this year, I think they seriously, and by they, I mean Formula One, the FIA need to press the race organizers on improving in this track if it's going to stick around for another five years. Yeah, I mean, if they're, you know, if we're looking at something like that, then that's kind of out of our hands. Another thing that is out of our hands, which might actually make the situation, uh, you know, a little bit more beneficial from a spectacle point of view is the weather. So if you look at the weather on Saturday, they're calling for about a 60% chance of thunder showers or rain showers throughout the day. From about 1 to 4 p.m., we're looking at about 76 um, degrees Fahrenheit, which is about 24 degrees Celsius. So, I mean, you know, that could affect qualifying, right? So, if that shakes up the like qualifying and where everybody's starting, you know, if you've got, you know, just depending how the, the weather plays out during qualifying, you might have faster cars at the back of the grid and slower cars at the front, just, you know, because it makes uh, qualifying unpredictable and that could make for an interesting Grand Prix. But, like you say, until we see these new cars on the track it's uh, it's it's a bit of an unknown quantity to see you know how does it work do the new uh, do, does the new formula and the new cars uh 
do they really adapt well to the circuit or not? I mean, on Sunday, though, we're, we're looking at about the same temperatures, you know, mid-70s or mid, uh, mid-20s. It's going to be sunny. It's not going to be quite as hot as uh, we've seen there because, uh, you know, in years gone by, I think it's been, you know, north of the 30 degrees uh, Celsius, which is getting pretty toasty. Not going to be quite that hot, but uh, certainly, you know, keep your eye out on Saturday and see whether or not this uh, forecast uh, prediction is going to be uh, accurate or not and uh, see if that uh, really tosses the the uh, the grid upside down because I think that that for me would be that could really make it uh, exciting. So I guess now, Mark, it would be um, prediction time. Who, who are you going to go with? Uh, you know, I, I don't dare bet against uh, Red Bull. I mean, I, I think that we've seen that uh, Ferrari obviously has a quick car, but for one reason or another, they're having a problem keeping these cars on the track. They either make a bad pit call, uh, you know, strategy wise from the pit, uh, pit wall. And, you know, they get that wrong or they catch on fire or they break somehow or their drivers put them into the gravel or into the tire barrier. <sighs> There's been a lot of things going on with the Ferrari all year long. I mean, and like we talked about after the Grand Prix last Sunday night, they got to have a good result this weekend because you either get some sort of moral victory that, yeah, we finally got one right, or else you got to wait for a month and that's just going to gnaw away at you and just eat away at you for an entire month before you're able to do something about it until we get to the flip side of the summer break at Spa in about four and a half weeks from now. Look, Ferrari absolutely has to qualify on pole. In fact, really, they need to lock out the front row. I think locking out the front row would give one of the two drivers an exceptional opportunity to win this race. And, you know, I'm looking at the track map right now and I'm just processing my in my head how these cars and how these drivers are going to react to this track. And to me, the only really obvious overtaking point on this track is the end of the main straight as you approach T1. I, I feel like that's possibly the only place that we're going to see any real activity. So if I'm, if I'm Max Verstappen and I qualify on pole, I win this race and I go into the summer break with an almost insurmountable lead in the championship. If I am Charles Leclerc, I have to qualify on pole, or at least my team and I have to lock out the front row because I need to keep the Red Bulls behind me because I cannot cannot hemorrhage any more points in the championship standings to that team. But I think ultimately, if they don't qualify on pole, if they qualify second, third, fourth, and Max is on pole, this race is over because Max has been absolutely impeccable this year. He's demonstrated an uncanny ability to approach every, every tight spot with an immense amount of maturity. I just don't see him making a mistake and I don't see his team making a mistake. Red Bull has been nearly flawless this year. And if we flash back to the first couple of races, Obviously, there were some DNFs and there were some issues with the fuel cells. Those are standard components. I don't fault them for that. But since then, everything that's been within their control has been flawless. So if Ferrari wants to maintain any chance at winning a championship or two championships, possibly, they need to qualify on pole or lock it out, uh, lock out the front row. And then if 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 Red Bull really wants to put their foot on the throat of a Ferrari, Max just needs to qualify on pole and then execute on Grand Prix Sunday and it's over. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with you, Mark. I, I think that they, they need to make, th- this has to be a statement weekend for them or else, you know, it, I don't want to say that the season is over, but if they don't come back and say, yeah, we can still do this. I mean, it's one thing for Mattia Bonato to say, yeah, we've got what it takes to win like the, the last 10 races of the year. 
but you got to make you got to make a statement and actually prove it. I mean, by doing that, I agree. You need like a front row lockout. You got to win the race. You know, like getting like a like a one two would be you know be ideal. I I just don't know how realistic that is. I mean, I've just seen too many chinks in the armor. You know, it, it's you know, there, there's no not just one thing that is the Achilles heel when it comes to Ferrari, right? It, it's it's been too many things in too many different areas. It's been the drivers. It's been it's been on the pit wall. It's been in the garage. It's been the cars themselves. It's just you know, it's 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 too many different things. But you know, we know they have a competitive car, but that's that's the frustrating thing about it. And you you need to prove it to me. I'm just like, oh hey, sure, yeah, come back into the championship, make it exciting. Let's let's have us on or like have everybody in the edge of their seats until the the middle of December until we get to to Yas and then we have like another one race shootout between probably Max Verstappen and say Charles Leclerc maybe maybe even Carlos Sainz gets interested in this championship and can can push for it but until they can start winning races and dominating and taking points away from Red Bull in in handfuls you know it just it kind of seems like maybe hollow words is a bit uh, too too unfair but you know it's just like you know Prove it to me. Show show me the receipts. Here's a stat that will blow your mind. Okay, blow my mind. We both know Verstappen is leading the championship by 63 points. Yep. Coming out of Albert Park, coming out of Australia, Leclerc was up 46. There has been a 107-point swing since Australia. So I'm going to run you through this. After Bahrain, after Bahrain, Leclerc was up by 26. After Jetty, he was up 20. He was up 46 after Australia, 27 after Imola, 19 after Miami. Verstappen squeaks into the lead after Spain, a plus six. Then we go into the next Grand Prix, he's up plus nine. Then we go into Azerbaijan, he's up 34. We go into Canada, he's up 49. Then he loses a little bit of ground in Silverstone, plus 43. Loses a little bit more in Austria, plus 38. And then after France, he volts i guess i don't know the better verb (laughs) he jumps ahead to 63 points and and you know what you and i talked about this you know going into france all he had to do all he had to do was pick up four points a race not even four points 3.6 points per race on verstappen to have a shot at this title now he's got to make up eight points per race and if he doesn't make up a significant number of points this weekend the math just doesn't work man it just doesn't work okay so do you do you want a spicy race prediction here before we we sign off or 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 what okay i'm going to give you my podium I okay do. let's do it so it's not going to be too spicy to begin with i'm going to predict uh, max verstappen's going to win this one but on the second step of the podium i'm going to pick lewis hamilton and on the third step of the podium, I'm going to say Carlos Sainz. Is that spicy or is that a little bit kind of like meh? You, you don't look impressed, so I don't know. Maybe, maybe that's that's a good betting line. That that's a really good prediction. That's not even spicy. That's just a really good prediction. Oh, okay. I, I was kind of hoping I was being like a little bit. So I wouldn't say out there. I was I was hoping to provoke like a little bit of like discussion. I didn't expect to say, man, yeah, I can go with that one. So no, that that yeah. makes sense. Like Max is going to win. Yeah. He's going to qualify well. I don't see anyone qualifying ahead. Although to be fair, you made that great point, and I think the weather reports that are coming across our desks here at the Scuderia F1 podcast indi- indicate that we could have some uh, some choppy weather this weekend. Yeah. Possibly 
possibly not for the Grand Prix, but in qualifying during free practice. So maybe we have a wet qualifying and the grid's shaken up. And if we do have a, an interesting, spicy grid, uh, that means we could have a really interesting race. Yeah, totally. Like, you know, I, I don't want to be like overly cruel to uh, Ferrari, but let, let's just put it this way. It's just like, I want to believe, but guys, you're going to have to prove it to me now. Like if you want to take these points in handfuls away from Red Bull, it's got to start right now. You got to have a good qualifying. You got to have a good race. You got to outperform for uh, Red Bull. But not only that, I mean, you can't just be faster. You got to keep these cars on the track for all 70 races. You got to make the right calls on the pit wall. And, you know, it, it's just, it seems there's so many moving parts when it comes to them. It's just, it, it's hard to pick them outright, and I kind of hate to 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 be in this position because I really feel like they deserve a lot more, but they've really taken away a lot from themselves. So, anyways, if they continue to hemorrhage points like this through the rest of the championship, F1 needs to stand up and mandate a return of Ross Braun to Ferrari. Bring yeah, the glory <laughs> back, Ross Braun. You're being demoted to running a team again. Although I guess you, you're not really ever demoted to running Ferrari, but you're going back. Yeah. You're going back to the barracks my friend. We need you to fix this team. Well, why don't you bring back Joan Toad and Rory Byrne and get the band back together, you know? <laughs> if you really want to go back to the uh, the, the glory days. But uh, anyways, we'll, we'll just leave it right there. Well, sir, thank you very much uh, for doing this uh, again tonight. Thank you all for, for joining in. A late shout out to, to Connie who just jumped into the, uh, the chat on the live stream just in the last couple of minutes. So uh, Connie was saying that her prediction is uh, Carlos once again ends the season with more points than Charles. So I think uh, this seems to be like a bit of a recurring (laughs) comment uh, from from Connie. So glad to see that uh, she joined in with Rocky and uh, and Daniel and some of the other regulars in the live chat uh, tonight. So guys, Thanks so much uh, for joining in. If you want to get in touch with us, uh, by all means, uh, do so. Send us a tweet at ScooteryF1Pod on Twitter. Email ScooteryF1Pod at gmail.com. Apologize. I noticed our spam uh, folder got uh, filled with some emails that have been sitting there from legit people for the you know a little bit too long. Don't, don't know how that happened, so apologize uh, for that. Also, if you want to support the show, easiest way to do so, jump on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Leave us a five-star rating and review. That uh, would really mean a lot to us, and uh, we, we get some some great reviews and a lot of great feedback and comments from you guys all the time and we uh, really appreciate all the love and that's it that's a wrap enjoy the rest of uh, your night enjoy the hungarian grand prix this weekend we'll be back on sunday night to wrap it up and i'm just about to lose my voice so i'm going to sign off here enjoy the weekend guys see you in a couple of weeks sorry a couple of days bye for now